Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. But first, we start with public sector contract talks. Most of the big unions here in B.C. now at the bargaining table. Teachers, nurses, hospital workers, liquor store workers. We talked about this on the show yesterday. I spoke to Stephanie Smith. She's the president of the B.C. Government Workers Union. And she said, yeah, talks are not going well. Here's what she had to say to me yesterday. We will prepare for every eventuality. And so, yes, right now we're going to be speaking with our members. We're going to be doing a lot of reach out and we're going to be planning to take a strike vote. But again, it's entirely up to the employer at this point what happens next. Okay, let's talk to one of the other major public sector unions in the province right now. My guest is Mina Brissard. Mina is with the Hospital Employees Union and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Mina. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Where are you guys at right now in contract talks? Thanks, Mike. Uh, We're still in the early uh, stages of negotiations, and the BCGU is about four to six weeks ahead of us. And and talks are going well uh, for us uh, so far, and we're really determined to secure an agreement that supports healthcare workers and and builds a better healthcare system. But again, we're still in the early days of these talks, and we really need to let our bargaining committee do their job and negotiations uh, take their course. And, and what we do know is that the past two years have been very challenging for healthcare workers on the front lines of COVID-19 pandemic. And, and investing in our healthcare workers today will help us build the sustainable healthcare system we all want and we all deserve for the future. Okay, well, Stephanie Smith from the BCGEU union told me yesterday, Mina, that they're looking for a raise of... or a raise that matches the inflation rate, whichever is higher. And with the way inflation is going now, could easily be more than 5%. Is is the hospital employees union looking for a similar raise? Well, we have a protocol agreement in place with uh, the health employers, employers, uh, British Columbia, and we're not in a position as uh, the BCGU is to really talk about specifics of bargaining. But what I can say is that cost of living protections are critical uh, to achieving a renewed collective agreement and compensation is a critical piece. And uh, the initial monetary proposal that's been tabled uh, by health employers uh, falls uh, way short uh, of a fair compensation package. And really when healthcare unions bargain in public healthcare, we're bargaining for our members, but we're also bargaining for a better healthcare system for all of us. And We need to make improvements to keep the skilled workers we have and attract the ones we need for the future. Speaking to Mina Brassard from the Hospital Employees Union about contract talks. Mina, what do you say to people who are listening right now who may say, oh, I I didn't get a a 5% raise this year. I don't think I'm getting a 5% raise next year. Boy, these, these public sector workers, they've got an awesome pension plan too. We don't have any of this. What do you say to people when you hear that? Well, after two years of this pandemic, and now with the cost of living and inflation being so high, healthcare workers are struggling. They're struggling to pay their rent, they're struggling to keep a home, or, or to find a new one. 
and they're worried about feeding their kids or paying for gas. And really, this pandemic has stressed them out. They're burnt out and they need our help. And healthcare workers need a compensation and benefits package that provides economic security, which will help address the recruitment and retention issues that we face now and we faced before the pandemic. Let me play a clip here for you from Premier John Horgan speaking the other day to Global News, and he was asked about these contract talks, whether maybe we're heading to strikes here in the public sector. Here's what Horgan had to say, and then I'll get your thoughts. What I want to do in the time I have available is to make sure we have a human resource strategy to make sure that we get the right people to do the work that's needed. Does that involve negotiations with big unions in British Columbia? Absolutely it does. But we need to we need more money coming in. Okay. We need more money coming in. He made a point there. Like, well, I, let, so let me ask you, like, where is the money supposed to come from? Because if we do the math on, on these contract wage, wage demands right now, like if it's 5% is going to be the pattern for bargaining, I mean, you do the math across the whole public sector, you're looking at like a $10 billion contract package over three years. So that's like the entire contingency fund in the budget. So where is the money supposed to come from to pay for these raises? Well, given the contents of the government's budget and fiscal plan that they announced in February that you're referring to, we know and we believe that there are cost of living protections for healthcare workers and it is affordable for government. And this government acted boldly uh, during the pandemic and we need to see that continue as our healthcare system recovers. There were issues with staffing and workload before, but this pandemic has made things work worse. Uh, workers are burnt out. And in a recent poll that we conducted, one in three is considering leaving healthcare altogether. And to ensure quality patient care, we need to improve the job with better compensation and safer workloads. It will help uh, to retain today's skilled and experienced healthcare workforce and attract the next generation so, of so workers. So therefore, Mina, so you're saying that if there was an across-the-board cost-of-living Increase wage increase, let's say matching the inflation rate, you believe that government can afford that in the current budget? Like they would not have to raise taxes to pay for it? Yeah, again, given the contents that they released in their fiscal plan uh, just a couple of months ago, we do believe that cost of living protections are, are there and government can afford it. Yeah, you've, um, the Hospital Employees Union and other unions in BC have, have made a great effort here to tell the public about the, the stresses and strains that public sector workers have been under. And I imagine, certainly in our healthcare system during the pandemic, that's it's been quite acute. Let me ask you about that. You've already touched on it a, a few times. Like the stress and the workload that workers are facing in our hospital system right now, what would you say about that? Well, again, we recently uh, surveyed our members, and one in three do not believe there are adequate mental health supports in the workplace. And healthcare workers have shouldered the weight of this pandemic for two years, and it's really taken its toll. And we need to ensure that workers who are struggling with the impact of work-related trauma and stress can access improved mental health supports, not just today, but in the months and years to come. And that's what we're fighting for at the bargaining table as well. It's not just compensation, but it's uh, to ensure that we have the supports uh, to uh, have our members uh, have improved mental health supports, deal with recruitment and retention, deal with understaffing, deal with uh, improving in compensation, and, and health and safety is at the forefront of our negotiations as well. Mina, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Mike.
All right, let's talk about Pierre Polyev's campaign for the leadership of the Federal Conservative Party. This one is spilling into provincial politics here now. Mike DeYoung, the liberal MLA, uh, the former attorney general in B.C., this week he endorsed Polyev. Now, you may have heard yesterday's show, my interview with NDP MLA Grace Lore, who just ripped into DeYoung for this endorsement. Uh, she is not impressed with Polyev. Here's what she had to say to me yesterday. We've got a senior BC Liberal MLA uh, endorsing a candidate for the Conservatives who has had extreme views, who has supported the anti-vax convoy, where we know that many of the leaders uh, hold white supremacist views. He has used coded language, has expressed harmful views who has promoted uh, conspiracy theories. It's a pattern of allowing extremist views that are out of step with most British Columbians that is not about building uh, a province and a country inclusive of all people. Okay, it's NDP MLA Grace Lore on yesterday's show. Let's get the response now from Mike DeYoung, the Liberal MLA, the former Attorney General. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Mike, thanks for coming on. Mike, good to be on the program. Okay, Mike, let's start with your endorsement of Pierre Polyev. Why have you decided to back him for the federal conservative leadership? Mike, it won't surprise you to know that uh, I have been pretty concerned about uh, some economic matters, uh, perpetual deficits that seem to be uh, embraced now at the, the, the national and provincial level, spiraling debt, increased inflation, uh, rising interest rates. And, and I've been waiting for a, a national leader to come along who's prepared to talk about those things, talk about their importance, uh, and talk about what the longer-term implications are for Canadians. And uh, Polyev's the only guy that's been prepared to do it and has the courage to do it. All right, Mike, you gave a public endorsement of him during his campaign swing through B.C. the other day. Uh, he, he gets a lot of big crowds at his events. What are you hearing from people when you were in that Polyev crowd there? What are they telling you? Like, what, why do you think he's getting this much attention? I think he's dealing with uh, issues, uh, honestly, uh, in, in a language that people understand. I, I have to say, uh, I've not seen... And as, as you know and remind me quite frequently, uh, uh, I've been in uh, public life a long time. I've not seen that kind of energy, that kind of youthful presence uh, in a crowd before. Uh, I, I really, really haven't. And uh, and I, I think he's resonating because of the uh, the things he's saying and, and the issues he's prepared to deal with. Talking to Liberal MLA Mike DeYoung about his endorsement of Pierre Polyev. Okay, Mike, let's talk about some of the criticism that Polyev has received and also that you are getting from the NDP here in BC for your endorsement. Your NDP friend there, Grace Lore, NDP MLA in Victoria, she was on the show here yesterday. She says Polyev is an extremist. She pointed out he supported the trucker convoy in Ottawa. She said some of the leaders of that convoy were white supremacists. And she called you out and ripped you yesterday here on the show for endorsing him. How do you respond to that? Yeah, it was, a, it was a, a, an interesting, baffling uh, discussion, really. Uh, you have watched me. You have been very critical uh, of me over the years on a variety of issues. 
but I take great exception to having words like uh, white supremacist, and I think at one point uh, she talked about anti-Semitism. Yeah. Uh, I'm offended by that. Look, I don't think Grace Lore and I share the same economic views, but that's okay. I'm not going to vilify her or attack her because she has um, different views on on some important public policy issues. Um, I I had hoped you know she would extend extend the same courtesy, but uh, uh, apparently not. Uh, you know, Polly have. Uh, here are the parts that I recall. Uh, he spoke out against blockades. Yeah. Uh, said that, uh, and I think you confronted her with that yesterday. Uh, you don't, you don't promote your own freedom by denying someone else theirs. And, uh, uh, but I'll, I'll tell you honestly, the, uh, the part of this that uh, I am very much attracted by is finally the willingness of a national leader to stand up uh, and talk about. The, uh, the risks associated with the economic path uh, we're on. And, uh, and, you know, those are difficult subjects to talk about, far easier to write checks. Uh, but uh, I admire the, the courage of, of someone who's prepared to engage Canadians in a, in a meaningful conversation uh, al- about those important issues. She also singled out Polyev's pl- promise to scrap the federal carbon tax. Are you on board with that? Do you support his view on that? As you uh, pointed out correctly, uh, he has spoken about uh, the, uh, the national carbon tax and said uh, and, and ensured that he's not going to interfere with what provinces uh, have in place. It's, it's interesting to hear that criticism from the member of a, a party, the, the NDP, that ran an entire campaign that I was involved with against the carbon tax that we created. Yeah. That's are probably you, an, an inconvenient. That's a, probably an inconvenient fact for for someone like Grace Lore, but she's a member of the only party in this country that has actually run an entire campaign against the elimination of the carbon tax. Let me ask you about some of Pierre Polyev's other policy positions and get your thoughts on it. Like, are you buying everything that that he's selling here to Canadians? Like, I wonder what you think about his his Bitcoin stuff, where he is. He has touted Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as some kind of hedge against inflation, and he wants he wants Canada to be the crypto capital of, of the world, and he's criticized Canada's central bank. Are, are you on board with that? Do you, do you endorse that? Yeah, I'm not. Uh, the, some of these conversations uh, are, are interesting. He's certainly provoked a, a lot of thought. What I am drawn to, Mike, as I said earlier, is the fact that finally someone has come along that, that has said we can't. Uh, continue with perpetual deficits and spiraling uh, debt. Look at what hap- what's happening to inflation. Uh, the, the, the savings that Canadians have are going to be devalued. Um, you know, what the, uh, as you pointed out uh, yesterday, these, the mess that is being created both federally and provincially uh, economically uh, is going to take a, a lot of time to, to clean up. And the fact that someone is prepared to to say, look, we've got to consider uh, some options uh, in that regard. Uh, but first, we have to admit that there is an issue uh, and that we can't continue down this path, I think, is uh, is good. And as you say, this is why I think you're seeing these 
these uh, rallies, uh, si- sizable rallies, unlike anything we've seen in this country for a long, long time. Just, Justin Trudeau was in B.C. this week as well, and he's obviously noticed the crowds that Poliev is attracting, uh, called out Poliev for what he referred to as his simplistic approach to housing affordability. Polyev was here the other day saying, well, he could deal with the price of housing, make housing more affordable if he could get the Central Bank of Canada to stop printing money, in his words. Are you, does that make sense to you? Like some of the stuff, some of his policy positions do seem very simplified and whether they make sense to you. Uh, well, quite the contrary, because uh, one of the things that I, uh, that I have heard and, and am very drawn to uh, is of course around this issue uh, of supply, uh, and around the issue of the length of time it is taking uh, to get housing, new housing, uh, approved. And and there are things that governments can do uh, about that. And so you know the you know for for the better part of a, a, a number of years, uh, we have been told in BC by the present provincial government that this was all about foreign money. You remember that 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 was that the blame was was placed squarely uh, in the lap of uh, foreign money and foreign investment. Of course, we discovered uh, that simply isn't the case. Uh, this is a supply issue, and there are things that we can do uh, that governments can do to address that, and and they need to be done. And a guy like Poliev is prepared uh, at the national level, at least. Uh, to acknowledge that and apparently tie funding to those changes being made, and I I think uh, those are all uh, those are all uh, healthy approaches and necessary right. approaches. Mike DeYoung, last question for you. It is a a little bit unusual, I guess, to see a provincial politician sort of crossing crossing over to federal politics and endorsing a, a federal leader. Are you planning to? jump into federal politics and, and run for the Conservatives if Polyev becomes the leader? Two things, Mike. Um, the, the short answer is uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, I've been in public life a long time, uh, and, I, uh, and I honestly don't know. But the first part of your question is interesting because you had a member um, of the Legislative Assembly uh, on yesterday who is a member of a federal party. So these questions generally get asked of, you know, uh, BC Liberals. They're never never really asked of uh, members of the NDP, who are members of a national party of a of a federal party. So um, it's there's a little bit of a double standard uh, when it comes to commenting on on national politics. Uh, you're a member of the Federal Conservative Party, though, is that right? Uh, uh, for, I'm uh, on my third day, Mike. Okay, you just signed <laughs> up. Okay, you're on the Polyev train. Yeah. There sounds like okay. <laughs> Mike, Mike, thank you for taking the time today. Appreciate it. Uh, I enjoy being on the program, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Mike DeYoung there, Liberal MLA, Abbotsford West, talking about his endorsement of Pierre Polyev. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Vancouver's public parks now and the city's homeless population. Now, we've seen a lot of people camping in city parks over the last few years. It has at times led to large homeless encampments in city parks. People will remember Strathcona Park, Oppenheimer Park, Crab Park. They've all had these tent cities that at times have led to conflicts and problems. So what are the rules when it comes to sleeping and camping in Vancouver parks? I'll have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Jordan Armstrong. The Park Board's general manager says this to those who wonder if a tent city is coming soon to their neighborhood. We have a park control bylaw saying that, you know, they can't stay during the day. So we will be uh, enforcing the park control bylaw. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Betty Leps. Betty is the Vancouver Board of Parks and Recreation, a newly appointed Director of Urban Relationships. And I'm pleased to welcome Betty to the show. Hi, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Nice to be here. Okay, can you tell me about your job here? What is the, the Director of Urban Relationships? What, what does that entail? Wow, Mike, first of all, this is my third day, and I'm excited to be here. And so it's in progress. It's learning about what that's going to entail. It's going to be looking at parks and those that are sheltering in the parks. What do we need from a humane um, point of view? Who do we need to be involved? As we all know, homelessness is not is a complex issue, and it's not one person or one system issue. So my role will be evolving as the days go on. But a key part is doing, you know, internal and external partners and meeting with them and finding out what it is we need. And also, you, you know, shared a clip of um, GM Rosa speaking about the bylaws and also how, also how are we going to uphold those bylaws and ensure that everyone gets to enjoy the parts. Right, yeah, so the clip we heard there, we heard from Donnie Rosa there as the general manager for the Vancouver Park Board talking about the, the bylaw. Is, is that bylaw still on the books? Like, you're, you're not allowed to, are you allowed to sleep overnight in a park or you're supposed to, you're supposed to pack up and leave in the morning? Like, how does it work? What are the actual rules? Well, I'm still learning all of that, but that is the key rule of that bylaw, and we are working towards that. But we also have to ensure that we're doing it in a really um, compassionate way, because people that are sheltering in the parks are there for a reason. And there could be multiple reasons, whether it is, you know, um, non-affordability, whether it's trauma, whether it's racism. So we have to approach these things with a trauma-informed lens and to ensure that people have what they need to move on and to be well and successful. Right. Okay. So when it comes to people who are actually camping or, or sleeping in a park all night, is that allowed in Vancouver parks or is that technically against the bylaw? In some of the parks it is. But, um, yeah, I'm not fully clear on what those, which ones those are at this point, but we're, I'm learning as each day goes by. And so that's going to be something that I'm going to, um, well, get you're up the, to you're the new, as well. You're the new park board director on this file, though, right? You don't know what the rules are on camping and parks? No, I do. I'm learning oh. them. Oh, okay. Yes, and it is seven to seven, but it's not all the parks. Right. Which so? Which parks are you allowed to camp in? That's what I'm still learning. Oh, okay. It's been my day three. Right. 
Uh, okay, so okay, so let's say it is one of these parks where you're allowed to camp. What is what is the rule? So at seven o'clock, you're supposed to clear out. Yes, yeah, seven a.m. I see. And how and how effective has that been? Like, do people generally move along, or are there problems? Usually, generally, they move along. But as I said, people are coming with um, multiple issues that we're also working with them and also with other systems to help support them. Yeah. And how many homeless people in Vancouver are sheltering in our parks right now? I don't have that exact number at this time, but I can certainly look into that. Oh, okay. But, but your job is to, so let's go over what your job is again. So, so your job is to coordinate with the homeless community or, or, or liaise with them or talk to them about this? Or what exactly, what exactly is it that you're going to be doing? We're going to be evolving that role, and that's what I'm saying in the next few months. We're going to be looking at what that's actually going to entail. But at this point, it's building those relationships with those in the park, with those internal and external stakeholders to ensure that people are, you know, getting the needs met that they need um, to be well. Yeah, yeah. And so for people who are living in parks or camping in parks overnight, what about the people who live in those neighborhoods, like the area residents there who may be concerned about this? I mean, we hear stories all the time about people who are going through mental health episodes or, or overdosing on drugs or needles that are left around parks. Is that a problem in your mind? It's all an issue, absolutely, and that's going to be part of this role when it's, you know, the title is Urban Relationship. I'll be building those relationships, as I said, internally and externally as well. That means the community, we're all a part of this issue, and so we all have to have conversations about it to see how best we can support everyone to enjoy their outside environment. Yeah. Speaking to Betty Lapps, she is the Director of Urban Relationships at the Vancouver uh, Park Board. Uh, do you think that like, you come from a housing background, right? You were part of uh, the BC housing before you took this job. I was. Yeah. So do you think that, like, how do you sort of view this camping in parks? Is, is that part of the, is that part of the solution for the homeless crisis we're seeing in the city in your mind that people should be allowed to camp in parks at night? Mike, I think all around it's a systemic issue. It just doesn't start with people, you know, um, seeking sheltering in parks. It starts from, as I said earlier, many different issues that people experience. And so it's systemic. And how we deal with that has to be from a systemic point of view. So it's not just one thing. It's not that if it's good or it's bad. It's looking at all the players um, internally and externally, including our citizens and how we participate in this large issue. Yeah. But I guess, I guess it now is, you know, should we just face the sort of reality of the situation that, you know, people are sheltering, they're, they're sleeping in parks. We've seen, we've seen tent cities spring up in public parks in Vancouver. Is that something that maybe it's, this is reflected in your appointment to this job right now, that this is something that we've just got to accept? live with, uh, tolerate, that people are going to be living in parks. That's all there is to it. And if you happen to live in that neighborhood, maybe you don't like it, you don't like people camping in the park in your neighborhood, well, that's just the reality. People have got to sleep somewhere, so they're going to sleep in a park. Is that the way you look at it, like th- that this is just a reality we have to accept? No, I think it's caused some systemic um, issues that are happening now. 
So it's a scenario now, and that's one of the roles that, you know, part of my role It's going to be working towards what does that look like? How can we support? So it's the situation that's happening now doesn't mean that it's going to continue and be long-term. Do you think that I've talked to people who have camped in some of these tent cities, and I'll say to them, why do you live here? Like, why are you camping at a park? Why not go to a homeless shelter if there's a shelter space available? Sometimes the answer is, well, there is no shelter space. The shelters are full. But often you will also hear, and I'm sure you've heard this too, that I don't want to go to the shelter. I think the shelters are dangerous. I don't like them. I prefer to, I prefer to be outside. I prefer to camp right here in the park. Do you think that that's, that for some people, it's a choice. It's a choice they're making. They want to sleep there, not, not in a shelter. Yeah, and I think everyone has those choices, and that's what we're working towards when I go into the park, and just as I did at Strathcona Park and met with the campers, because everybody's going to have their individual concerns because of their lived experience. Everyone's going to have their own decisions and choices, um, and we don't know each of those. That's why it's almost like a one-to-one conversation needs to happen to understand that individual and their needs. Yeah, and, and when you understand their needs, what happens next? Do you help them to find housing? or? Yeah, or? we hopefully work with all the systems to help to see what their first priority is that they need, yeah. right? It may be food insecurity. It might be housing insecurity. It might be trauma. It might be um, racism. It might be domestic violence. So everyone is coming with a different lived experience. And the important yeah. thing is to find out what those are on an individual basis. So we are able to bring in the right support that is needed for them to make a really good decision for themselves around their well-being. Would you, last question for you, Betty, like in your sort of perfect case scenario here, would you like to see a situation where people people are not sleeping in the parks or they don't have to sleep in the park they got somewhere else to sleep they got a roof over their heads like is that is that is that what you think should be the goal Absolutely I think people should be able to have an indoor space where they feel warm where they feel safe um but that's not for everybody as you mentioned earlier some people choose for whatever different reasons um but that's also what we think as society or as a societal norm that if you have a roof over your head and a warm space, you're happy. Not everybody feels the same. So. All right, Betty, thank you for coming on today. Thanks very much, Frank. Have a great day. All right. Let's talk about BC's next big earthquake. Have you ever felt a quake in BC? I've felt a few tremors over the years. Nothing too big. Talk to the experts though. And they'll tell you, just wait one of these days the big one is going to hit. Could be tomorrow, could be a century from now. Personally, I'm hoping for the second option there. Now, have a listen to this. The science continues to evolve on early earthquake warning systems, and they're working on one in B.C. Have a listen to this report now from global news reporter Ted Chernecki. This is very exciting. In two years, we're going to be able to send out those earthquake early warning alerts which can provide seconds to tens of seconds of alert before the strong shaking arrives. Those would be key seconds. Perhaps enough time to trigger trains to slow down, stop traffic going onto bridges and into tunnels, divert incoming air traffic, close gas valves automatically, even open fire hall and ambulance bay doors. Okay, that report from Global News there. This is one of those topics that kind of makes me feel a little nervous to talk about, but it is the reality. Now, check out this brand new report. It says a mega thrust earthquake 
if and when it does hit Metro Vancouver, could obviously be devastating for a number of reasons, including impacts on Metro Vancouver's water supply. Uh, This report says a large earthquake could send, uh, could affect water supplies to 21 municipalities in the Lower Mainland. All right, let's talk about this now with my guest, Gregor Craigie. Gregor is the author of the great book. I highly recommend it to you on borrowed time, North America's next big quake. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Gregor. Hi, Mike. Good to be with you again. Thanks a lot for coming on again. And Gregor, have you ever felt a tremor in BC? Yeah, I've felt a few tremors uh, like you have, Mike, and, and, and I put my vote down for the 100 years from yeah. now. Uh, I mean, I'm curious, you know, like a lot of journalists like you, I'm curious about things, but let's be honest. I want this to happen long, long, long after I'm gone, but it may not. I mean, it could happen 10 minutes from now for all we know. Right, and that's why we have to be aware of this risk and be prepared for it, too. This interesting new report that has just come out indicating the threat to water supplies in the event of a big earthquake. How could water supplies be impacted by a major quake? Yeah, there's a there's a clear track record of this happening. And this report, uh, it goes into some detail and, and, uh, and uh, it, it lists you know, water pipes in 267 places, as many as 267 places being ruptured or cracked or or ruined in any which way, which will affect the water supply across Metro Vancouver. This happened, Mike, 10 years ago or 11 years ago, I guess it was in Christchurch, New Zealand. Uh, your listeners may remember the big earthquake there that caused more than 200 deaths and that was the headline, of course. We, we pay attention to deaths for good reason. But what, what a lot of us around the world, far away from New Zealand, lost sight of or didn't even hear about was just the disruption to day-to-day life for thousands and thousands of people for months and even years after the fact. And one of the big disruptors was the loss of water and, in fact, sewer services because uh, the, the, the damage to the ground, the shaking of the ground, and the liquefaction of the ground under Christchurch ruined their water supply and their sewage dispersal system. Uh, So, I mean, that just made life miserable for people in Christchurch, New Zealand for months after the fact. And and even it hampered some of the efforts, uh, rescue efforts and life-saving efforts in Christchurch afterwards because firefighters had a lot less water than they would have liked to battle some of the fires that inevitably started after that earthquake. So it's a very real threat. It's happened before. And this uh, this new report in Metro Vancouver is is really uh, highlighting something that is not a, a surprise to emergency planners, but it's something that the rest of us, the public, should pay a lot more attention to. I think. Yeah, I agree with you. It's one of those ones when you start looking at the 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 black and white details of what a major quake could entail. It, it's a real wake up call for a lot of people. It's very sobering, uh, and that's a big focus of your book, right? Like the actual threat mm-hmm. that we face and how we prepare for it. So when it comes to the threat to our water supplies with water pipes being broken, sewage systems being disrupted, is there any way we can prepare for something like that? Like can we can we strengthen them to resist a quake? Yeah, definitely. There's lots that can be done to strengthen them. Uh, although, to, to be clear, you can only go so far. I mean, it's like when you talk to engineers about uh, making our buildings safer for earthquakes, they're quick to say, yeah, a lot of our old buildings can be strengthened and we can strengthen, continue to strengthen our building codes. And that's been done in the past, but you still can't really make an earthquake proof 
building. I mean, they, they, they're they quick to, to say we can make our buildings and our infrastructure stronger, but not absolutely foolproof. So uh, pipes can be strengthened, joins can be strengthened, dams that can, uh, can be strengthened, which is part of this uh, Metro Vancouver water report. And I know BC Hydro has been slowly doing work to try to strengthen their dams. Things can be improved. And this is crucial for our municipal planners, our emergency planners, our, our, our utilities and our hydros and so on to think about and to be planning and to be spending more money on. But we can do a lot as individuals, Mike, as well. Like that's why uh, if, any, every earthquake kit, every emergency preparedness kit should have some kind of water pur- purification, Where it's, uh, whether it's a commercially available thing like a life straw or, or a pouch uh, that lets you, you uh, uh, purify hundreds of liters of water so that you can make them clean to drink. That's, that's an absolute yeah. must element. We should be able to, to purify a drinking water for ourselves and ideally have a, a good deal of water stored because who knows how long we're going to have to be self-sufficient after a quake. I'm talking to Gregor Craigie. His book is On Borrowed Time, North America's Next Big Quake. When we look at the preparation in British Columbia, we've talked a lot about this over the years. we got to realize this threat is real. It could happen. we got to be ready for it. How is BC doing in terms of preparations, would you say? It depends on where we look specifically. I think, you know, I think one of the ones where BC is doing the best is on our schools. Now, we are still overdue and over budget on that. And I know some of your listeners will be thinking, what what are you talking about? My kid still goes to an old brick school that's vulnerable and hasn't been fixed yet. So I give that one an asterisk. But having said that, a lot of schools have been fixed. I've got three boys, Mike, and two of them go to schools that have been fixed. The other one is in a a school that is uh, supposed to be fixed in the next four or five years. And the B.C. government is getting there slowly. But other infrastructure were lagging way behind, you know, things like uh, things like underwater infrastructure that we're seeing here today, waterworks. Sewer works. A lot of our bridges, there are still thousands of vulnerable bridges. And don't forget, a bridge doesn't have to collapse into a body of water or a river or what have you. It can be displaced by even just, you know, six, seven inches. And that puts it off limits for people to travel over for emergency responders, fire trucks and ambulances and so on. And then, of course, there's all the private buildings in B.C. that don't really fall to government unless you're talking about building code and so on. There are thousands and thousands of old brick buildings, of old concrete buildings and even old wood buildings like my house that need uh, improvement, strengthening, and they haven't had it yet. Okay. Have other jurisdictions done a better job than British Columbia in preparing for this? Like that global news story we just heard about the efforts underway in BC to put in an early warning system for an earthquake, even if it's just a few seconds warning, it could be helpful. I understand that in some other jurisdictions, like in the United States, for example, they seem to be more advanced in in putting these type of systems in. Like, is, Is British Columbia behind other jurisdictions on this? Uh, the short answer is yes, and I don't want to take away from uh, the many hardworking professionals who are working on this. I think it was Alison Bird you, you heard in, uh, uh, from uh, from Natural Resources Canada, uh, Earthquakes Canada, working on that earlier earthquake warning system, and they're they're working hard on this. But in general, Canada is is behind places like California and Mexico and Japan, where they have more robust uh, early warning systems in place. I spoke to a colleague of mine, uh, Mike, from Czech News here in Victoria, uh, Keith Vass, who was uh, uh, on a personal holiday in Mexico three or four years ago, it must have been now, when there was a pretty big earthquake. He was in Mexico City, and before he even felt shaking, 
uh, he heard the earthquake warning sirens just on the streets in Mexico City. We're not wow. there yet uh, here in BC, but that's the goal to get there in a few years. And Earthquakes Canada is hoping to do it here in Vancouver, uh, Victoria, in Vancouver, and in fact, even to, to to roll out earthquake early warning in places like Ottawa, Montreal, and Quebec City a few years after that. All right, talking about the earthquake threat in British Columbia with my guest Gregor Craigie. His book is On Borrowed Time, North America's Next Big Quake. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Lots of calls coming in. Hans in Surrey. Hi, Hans. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Go ahead. Um, I've been in, excuse me, I've been in a couple and um, one in Taiwan. And I was maybe on the maybe 20th floor of a building, and it just felt like I was a little woozy, like it just my my equilibrium was a little bit off. And at the uh, found out later, no one else seemed to care about it. Uh, in the end, it was a it was a big earthquake in China. And I went outside downstairs outside. Nobody else seemed to notice. And the and the other one was actually here in Surrey quite a few years ago. I was on the phone to a customer, and I looked outside, and the all the there's a the, the lunch wagon was out there. People were buying food, and the whole building was swaying a little bit, and our, our racking was creaking. Yeah. And I was like, "Oh, excuse me, I, I think I have to go. I have to leave now because I think we're having an earthquake." And it, it, it seemed that if you were higher, you noticed it. If you were on the ground level, that people didn't really notice it. Thank you for sharing that, Hans. I had an interesting, similar experience. And Gregor, for your thoughts, I was at the BC Legislature one day in the press gallery of the Legislature which is on the third floor, mm-hmm. and I felt a tremor. And I asked some people sitting just a few feet away from me, did you feel something? And other people said, yeah, some people said they felt it, and other people said they didn't. And then sure enough, it was a small quake. But sometimes yeah. you can feel it, and sometimes you can't. But your thoughts? Yeah, well, one of the things that it really depends on, Mike, is the type of ground you're standing on or the building that you're inside is standing on. And the, the B.C. legislature here in Victoria has both good news and bad news. The good news is that it's built on bedrock, which tends to be where you want to be in an earthquake. You don't want to be on clay or sand or filled land that tends to liquefy and and amplify the shaking. But the B.C. legislature is on bedrock. So that's the good news for the legislature in that it doesn't amplify the shaking. It's built on solid ground. Uh, The bad news is that old uh, stone building, as you know, Mike, in a really big earthquake could come down. And that was always in the back of my mind when I was in the press gallery there about 15, 16 years ago. Yeah, it does cross my mind sometimes, too. Larry in Ladner. Hi, Larry. Go ahead. Hi. Okay, listen, I've got a question. I have a 13-foot beam down in my basement. My house is over 40 years old. And where it sits on the the walls on each end, you know, it's it's on like a two-by-six wall, sits on about three inches on each side, three, four inches. I'm wondering if I should support that with a 90-degree bracket to stop it. Like, I always scared that if you ever had any, even a small tremor, it might vibrate off. Yeah, I mean, lots of people are interested in maybe trying to earthquake-proof their homes. Gregor, your thoughts? Yeah, so first of all, what I'll say, I think it's a great specific question, and as somebody who's doing work on his own basement, I can I, I can uh, relate and appreciate the question. I'm going to give you the proviso that I'm not a structural engineer. Uh, however, I've hired one, and the entire thing is going to cost me about $2,000. Uh, there's lots of engineers you can look up and, and, and uh, who will come and advise you on that. And what my engineer uh, has got me doing is 
strengthening the pony wall between the top of that concrete foundation and the bottom of my main floor. It's just three or four feet, but but we're adding really thick plywood, and I'm doing this myself to the two-by-four two by wall studs to strengthen it. But another thing he had me do, and anyone can go down to their local hardware store and do this, is get uh, these strong steel uh, joints or plates that you can that you can uh, get in a number of shapes. Sometimes they're just T plates. Sometimes they'll go on a 90 degree angle. But you can nail them in. They're often made by the company uh, Simpson. Uh, but you can find them at, at a lot of hardware stores that, that help you strengthen joints like that. And they seriously reduce the risk that a beam like that is going to come off of a of a, a two by four or two by six uh, uh, horizontal. Uh, a piece of wood. So there's a lot of simple things you can do. Again, if it's anything serious, of course, you need to consult with an engineer, and, and yeah. I'm not one, but there's a lot of simple steps you can take yourself. Let's go to Anne on the line in Surrey. Hi, Anne. Go ahead. Uh, hi. According hi. to the last caller, uh, Shell Buzzy would help with a contractor yeah. for people that want to do stuff. Yeah. My experience was uh, back in the 70s, uh, my then husband and I were watching a late movie, and there was an earthquake. We felt it. He says, Quick, get the kids out of bed. we got to get the floater jackets, get in the truck. We drove out of Richmond because he said it's all on Pete. It's going to sink. We crossed the bridge. Of course, if we crossed the bridge, we'd be in trouble if something happened, too. And he made us sit there for three-quarters of an hour. Was he overreacting? <laughs> we got a minute left here, Gregor. Your thoughts? My thoughts are I like the way your husband thinks. I mean, I suppose, you, you know, now he was uh, he went more he did more than he had to. But we only know uh, when it's over and better to overreact a little than to underreact. So personally, I give your husband an A plus for that. I like the fact that he was proactive. If more of us thought that way and if more people had thought that way in past disasters, there'd be a lot more lives saved. Often it's as simple, especially when we talk about tsunamis, is getting to high ground or getting away from uh, the the. The, the land in question or, or the low ground in question. So uh, A plus to your husband. Yeah, sometimes it's safer to overreact than to underreact. Gregor, congratulations with all your success with the book. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks for having me again, Mike.